Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Kiddos, y'all can head to the kiddos table. This is the last message in our uh, series, That's My Jesus, Knowing the One We Worship. And today we go to the throne room where he is being worshipped right now. Now, some of you might be excited. Yes, he's preaching on Revelation. No, I'm not preaching on that kind of Revelation. I'm not gonna, I won't be getting into any of those uh, debatable issues, and they are quite debatable. Uh, as I've told you all before, I don't even have an opinion on how to interpret the most of Revelation. I'm, I'm not pre-millennial, pre-tribulation rapture, pre-millennial, post-tribulation rapture, post-millennial or amillennial. I'm, I'm whatever I read that day. That's, that's where I am on all of those questions. So if you ask me, it's going to depend on what I've read. I'm going to give you all the, the good reasons I've heard from all the good people that have different op- of opinions. So we're not going to get into that today. So don't even ask me. Don't raise your hand. It's not going to happen. We're going to look at one particular scene And we're going to see from this scene in heaven our one worth. Now, I just learned this week, I was this week years old, when I learned that there is a uh, a, a a place called Titan Ranch in Valonia, Arkansas. And it's home to uh, an Airbnb that's been built in a decommissioned nuclear missile silo. Like, all the stuff, yeah, all the crazy things are going through your head, exactly, and now you can go stay in it and spend the night. Those are some pictures of what they've done there. When the government decommissioned it, all they did was destroy the entrance and fill in some access tunnels, almost all the access tunnels, to it. And then this fella bought it about 11 years ago, and he dug out the access tunnels rebuilt the entrance, and then remodeled the inside. Uh, the, the bedroom is in the control room. Uh, the, the, the bathroom is, is right there in the bedroom. It's just incredible looking. Um, it's $485 a night, so if anyone's looking to bless us, I realize that's quite a blessing because I want to stay three nights. Uh, so, you know, for... Just around $1,850, $1,900, you can, you can bless us. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Not about wanting to stay there, but about paying that much money for it. Uh, so at one time, this, this Airbnb, this place where you can go and stay now, and, and it housed people. They had living quarters, but nothing like the uh, 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 beauty and, um, oh, there's an exquisiteness of what they have now. Uh, it held this nuclear missile, and, and, and I, I did some research, I've watched the movies, I watched War Games with Matthew Broderick uh, back in the 80s, so I, I thought I knew how you had to, the steps to set off a, uh, a nuclear missile, but I, I did some research just to be sure, and, and in order for that nuclear missile to be sent, and this was the Titan II rockets, these are the same rockets that, that they use to put people into space, or at least put stuff into space. So these are huge nuclear warheads aimed probably at Moscow or some, some city in Russia. 
and, and nothing would happen until the president called. I, if I read it correctly, the president had, they had to hear from the president. Now, it may have been a, a recorded message that went out to all the nuclear silos at the same time, uh, but, but that command had to be given. And then once that command was given and it was verified, yes, that is the president, and yes, he did use the, the proper code in order to set, it all, to, to set things in motion, then there were two men who, were, who would go to a safe, and they had, a, I think it was a key to the safe, and they would unlock the safe, and in the safe were, was uh, two keys, were two keys. They would each get a key, and then they had to go to the, uh, the ignition points, which were 12 feet apart, and they had to turn those keys at exactly the same time, 12 feet apart, so you couldn't have one person doing this. Uh, it had to have two people. And then there's a third person who is not on site who would confirm, again, if I read it correctly, confirm the code that the president gave in order to start the launch sequence. So at the very least, it took four people, four people uh, to launch this nuclear warhead, which, in fact, you would want, right? You wouldn't want uh, the, the cartoon version of the janitor backing up and sitting on the button and psh, we start World War III. You know, you, did, you had to make sure that didn't happen. So in, in a sense, it's not just that it was four, it, it, it took someone worthy to launch this terrible uh, instrument of destruction. And once, launch, once launched, there was, there was no going back. It was, it was the, the end of, well, as, as we thought uh, at the time, it was the end of civilization as we knew it. Right? That was the whole purpose of the movie War Games. The, the only good, the only winning move is not to play the game. And that's, that's what Jeffrey, the computer, discovered after simulating tic-tac-toe a trillion times or something like that. The only winning move was not to play. So it, it, it took these, these people who are worthy, but it took, it took four somebodies who were worthy. Four someones who, could, who had the, the, uh, the knowledge, the responsibility to do it. As we look at Revelation chapter 5, we find an even more um, final judgment, a more final act, a, a true end, and it only took one somebody. There was only one somebody that was necessary, and that one somebody is our one worth. So we see this in this passage. Etta read some of it uh, a few minutes ago. We're actually going to go back to chapter 4. I didn't put it on the screen, so just, uh, uh, but I'll get to chapter 5 in, in a couple of minutes, or however long it takes me to read. But I, I want to I get into chapter 5 because chapter 4 introduces this scene. We, we've gone from uh, the letters that, that John was writing, or John was dictating, to the churches, uh, the seven churches, and, and now we get to uh, the, the, what he sees. Chapter 4, so go ahead and if you have to turn your page, do that. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, 
I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, uh, speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven, with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. As you read Revelation, even as we get into the beginning of, of John's vision, we need to remember that, well, let me, let me back up for a second. Think of the dreams you have. And you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones where you're, uh, you're in high school and you know the person that uh, you're talking to is your let's say, your spouse, but, it turned, but the, the body that you see, the face you see is somebody from high school. It, the, the, the face and the, 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 the person you know it to be doesn't match until a few seconds later in the dream when that person turns into a Chevy Nova. 
And then you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, right, because he was a Chevy Nova in high school. Um, and, and then later on, as you fly through the ceiling of your school that you were in, you're at church suddenly, and while you're at church, uh, there's a seafood buffet. Right? Those are the kinds of dreams we had. And all that was in the space of five seconds. And in the dream, it makes total sense, except when you're arguing about it. And then when you wake up, you're thinking, what happened? All right. So as we come to Revelation, let's remember that John is seeing a vision. Uh, he says, immediately I was in the Spirit way back in chapter 4. So now he's on a different plane altogether. And he's seeing this vision and things, as we're going to see with just Jesus, just the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, he sees him, he knows who it is, he's walking up, he's coming into the room, whatever the room is, the one with the big sea in front of it and thunder and lightning everywhere and these animals with eyes all over and on the inside. How did he know they had eyeballs on the inside? Because suddenly he was at church and there was a seafood, seafood buffet. That's why. And God wanted him to see that sort of thing. I'm not dismissing or discounting that God is intentionally giving him this vision, this dream uh, that he is seeing and that everything in there isn't important. But remember that this is first and foremost figurative language that is talking about something that both the people in, oh, around 100 AD would understand and go, oh yeah, yeah, we can see how all that's going to happen tomorrow. And that we can then read and go, oh yeah, I can see how that's going to happen tomorrow. See, it has, to, it has to fit both of us. So he's having this dream state, this, this vision in the spirit, and even Jesus, who comes walking up into this room, he looks at him, and it's a slaughtered lamb walking up with hands that take a scroll. So you see how it's, you know, your, your spouse that suddenly but has the face of your friend, you, you, you get that feeling. That's what I, I, I thought about when I, uh, when I was reading it. You, you know it's one thing, but it looks like something else. That's what John is seeing here. So re remember that as we move into it, which is why there are seven or eight different ways, maybe more, to interpret various parts of Revelation. That's why you have debates on it, and it's why the Baptist faith and message of the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't say what we believe about the end times. It just says Jesus is going to come back in the body and take us home at some point. That's about all we can all agree on. When and how and what this all means, we don't. So, keeping that in mind, let's look at, what, at what's going on. We see in this passage our one worth. But we see, first of all, let's back up. Remember, we are, we're, we're looking at Jesus here. How does this passage tell us more about Jesus? How does it help us know the one we worship? Well, to go to a throne room where he is worshipped is one of the best ways to figure out. First, we see uh, the need for worth. In this instance, in this scene that John is writing about, that God wants us to know about, we see the need for worth. John says, after describing as best he could all these things going on, everything that he saw, the constant, consistent worship of God, 
He says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, that would be God, a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So when John begins or continues this vision, there, there, he, he first you know, kind of describes what he's seeing. This is what's going on in here. And then my focus was, was, uh, take, was pointed to this scroll. The scroll that's in the right hand of God. And, and it describes the scroll as, being, as having writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Seven seals or six seals actually were more common. Uh, seven seals weren't as common, but they were known. It's, it's almost always a, a last will and testament. Seven witnesses sealed it up, and it couldn't be opened until the person died. Other places in the, the New Testament talk about the importance of wills and how, uh, uh, I think it's Hebrews, talks about uh, how someone has to die before the will gets open. And that's what we're looking at here. The writing on both sides indicates how much information there was. They didn't write on the back of their paper back then. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't work as well. Uh, the way they made paper, uh, they used uh, uh, especially uh, uh, papyrus paper. The, it was the reeds were laid more horizontally on the side that they wrote. And if you flipped it over, the reeds were vertical and it kind of messed up your, your, your writing. So they rarely wrote on the back side of it. But the idea behind it is there's a lot here. And of course, God can, God can write on the back side of paper. It's not a big deal for him. But the, the, the image, the vision is God's got a lot to say in this scroll. And what we learn as we read on is that what the scroll has to say is, in so many words, the time has come for judgment to begin. To go back to our opening illustration, the president has made the call to the, to the nuclear missile silo and said, it's time to start the countdown. It's time to start the process of sending judgment to the earth. And now they know it's supposed to happen. John sees the scroll, and, and the angel proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to do the next task? See, there weren't two guys with the, with the, 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 the key to a, a safe that had the two keys to the ignition uh, that they could go and turn them at the same time. They, they, they looked, and they looked, and they looked. Now, sitting on the throne is God the Father. And, 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 and God is sovereign, and he could have, boop, done it, and, it, and, and, and the missiles are launched, and, and judgment has begun, but that's not the way he set it up, and it is certainly not the way he wanted John to see it. In his sovereignty, he determined that there would have to be someone else worthy to open the seals. Someone in fact, who would be human and, and live and, and among humans and die for humans, but also have the, the, the um, purity of God himself. And that, didn't, that, that narrows it down a lot. Right? It kind of eliminates, um, if I do the math real quick, uh, everybody. 
That's what it says. And who is worthy to, to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, the, the, the question is rhetorical, really, because everybody knows the answer. And yet, we're, we're left, if we stop at that verse, with a, a bit of a cliffhanger, because not just anyone is worthy to judge others. I mean, we, we, you can ask the question, should a president have the, the power to, to command nuclear war? Uh, if you've seen the movie, was it Hunt for Red October? No. No, this one was with Denzel Washington. I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it was a submarine where they got partial orders to shoot the missile and, and start World War III. I, I'm seeing some nods, so you know what I'm talking about. And, and, but it, it, then they got, well, what do we do? What do we not do? Um, that was Gene Hackman and, and Denzel Washington. Man, it's an all-star cast. Anybody remember the name of that movie? Uh, Crimson Tide. That's what it was. Very good. We don't like to say that. That movie that uses that awful, awful phrase from two states over. Um, yeah, great movie. Horrible football team. Um, you don't want to get this wrong. And so, sinful, fallen humanity, the angel says... Who is worthy? Well, that leads to the second point. There's the need for worth. And now in verse 3, we see the search for worth. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. John knows this. This is John talking now. This isn't, as best we can tell, a quote from anybody in the room. It's John's realization that no one was worthy. And there's this implication that they tried. They looked around. Now, right, different realm, different plane of existence, different uh, ability to see and all this stuff. So, so they looked in a hurry. But the, 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 the idea here is that a, a thorough search uh, above and middle and below finds no one worthy to begin judgment. Nobody is worthy to make the call and say, begin the launch. And, and, and it could be that he is talking about, John is talking about in verse 3, that not among the angels, the living people, or dead people. I mean, it, it, they, it looks like, possibly, that they looked all around in heaven. Anybody up here can do it? Mm -mm. All right, well, let's look on earth. Any, anybody who's living right now? Any, no. Well, let's check the dead people. Any of them any good? You know, no. Now, it, 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 it may not be that delineated. This could just be an idiom, a phrase meaning all over everywhere. They looked everywhere. And of course, they really didn't have to look, right? They knew. That, that's really the other implication. It implies a search, but it also implies a, we know the answer's no. There's not anybody. There's no one, there, there's no one among any created creature. That's really what the phrase means. There's, there's nothing, no one, no person, no created creature anywhere that can start the judgment of God. Well, just so happens. I don't want to give away the ending. But there's someone who isn't a created creature also isn't God, but is God, 
don't, no, no, I'm not a heretic, uh, is God, but is somehow different and somehow the same. So there's this search for worth, and, and the search for worth shows us that it, worth is extremely hard to find. And John then gives us a very human response in showing us the longing for worth. John says in verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or, to, or even to look in it. I wept and wept any time the, the Bible, Greek or Hebrew, doubles up on the, the verb it, 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 uh, or, or the word in general. The holy of holies means most holy, the holiest, the superlative. So when he says, I wept and wept, it's like I, I, I bawled my eyes out. I cried till I didn't have tears. I, 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 it was, I poured out all of my emotion. Again, remember this, this vision state that he's in, this dream state, and, and think about your own dreams. He, he did that in an instant, right? It was just suddenly, whoom, and that was all he had. And, and in his mind, he cried for hours when in fact it was seconds or whatever. It was, he, he felt this sudden emotion because worthiness could not be found. Now, the question is, maybe for you, is why? Why this longing for worth? Could he be weeping for his own unworthiness? That is certainly, certainly a possibility. Now, we, we, we don't see that obviously in Scripture, in the rest of Revelation. Uh, we, we don't see like what we saw with Isaiah Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The angel took a coal from the, uh, the, the fire in the Holy of Holies and touched his lips and said, now you're clean. That didn't happen here. John doesn't say, I don't see anybody worthy. You know, he's, he's not doing that sort of thing, thinking he's about to be made worthy. He understands nobody means nobody. There's nobody, and he is possibly weeping for his own unworthiness, but it is also possible that he is weeping at the moral incapability of all things. It's, it's, it's the, the overwhelming emotion of, of realizing we're all awful people at our, at our root, at our, at our unregenerated heart. Nobody. Nobody can do this. We are all sinners. And not only are those of us who are morally aware sinners, the ones who, are, aren't, who aren't morally aware animals, other creatures, well, they can't do it either because they're not morally aware. The ones who aren't morally aware can't do it because they they're not morally aware. And the ones who are morally aware aren't moral. So they can't do it either. And he weeps. Could he be weeping that the promised consummation of all things is in jeopardy? This is the most likely of the three. Though I think some part of all three is incorporated here. 
he is weeping at the very least because he has been promised, I must show you all these things that will happen, that must take place. Back in verse 1. Come up here, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And we begin the process and here's the throne room and all the worship and this is impressive and those four things are scary and all right and then the ooh songs, great songs, worship, awesome and then, then oh a scroll, the scroll's probably got to be opened, all right. And this is where we're going to stop. This is where the movie ends. This is a horrible ending to a movie or a dream or a vision or eternity. And so the emotion is so great for John that he could not contain his tears when it becomes possible at least in his finite human mind there's not anybody that can do this. Now think, of course, deep down he knew. I mean, this is, this is the beloved disciple. This is, the one, this is one of the three that had been around Jesus the whole time. This is one of the few that hung around the cross when he was being crucified. He, he was the first one to the tomb. He, he, this, this is the guy that, that wrote one of the Gospels, the, 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 the main theme of which is believe. And he's weeping. Maybe this is the end. Well, ultimately what we see in the tears of John here is that the longing for the righting of all the wrongs is deeply ingrained in us, especially Christians. I mean, we have that in our humanity. The longing for, for wrongs to be made right. But as Christians especially, we, we, know, we know why the wrongs are. Unbelievers, you know, maybe they're not even theists, they're not even deists, they're complete atheists and say it's just a, a chemical response. But even they want that chemical response to be different for, for things that are wrong to be made right. But we know that it is sinfulness on our part. We know that it is the deprivation and degradation of humanity that leads to all these wrongs. And we know that no matter our efforts, we can never make it right. So we look to the only one who can, Jesus and we long for. How, how many times have we said in the last year and a half, oh, Jesus, just come on back. Man, end this. Make this wrong right. But in longing for that righting of wrongs, I believe there is along with that in us a longing for worthiness. If, if you need help, if there is a wrong in your life that you can't right, and you need help to, to, to right that wrong, doesn't it tick you off when somebody you don't like writes it for you? 
Don't lie. Just stop, because you, you know, you, you like, why did he have to do it? Why did she have to do it? Now, it might change your opinion of that person, and that would be great. But your, your gut reaction, or maybe I'm the only sinner in here, I don't know. But you, the gut reaction is, well, I didn't want them to help me. I didn't want them to do that. That's what we do. As Christians, we know that the ultimate source of our help of righting wrong is Christ. That He is the only one that is truly worthy to right the wrong in our lives, in the world's life. And part of that is not just we want Him to do it. We know that anybody else is going to fall short. We may put some band-aids on these sucking chest wounds of life, but those Band-Aids aren't going to help that much. The only one that can heal the wound is Jesus. So we long for the one who is worthy to end it all, to please end it all for us. This is a different sermon. But that longing is very, very selfish on our part. Because if Jesus comes back tomorrow, how many of your family and friends are going to hell because they've never trusted him? And depending on your view of the end times, maybe they get a tribulation shot at it or whatever, but it's going to be very hard, and, and let's, not, let's not wait on that. Right? Let's, let's say, Jesus, don't come back yet. i got a family member who hadn't trusted you yet. Is it First Peter or Second Peter? It says, uh, the Lord isn't slow as we count slowness. He is waiting so that even more people will be saved. We long for worthiness, and we see that in John's heart right there. And then John gets the answer to his tears. Verses 5 through 7, we see the presence of worth. Then one of the elders, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, by the way, the only imperatives in this passage. Do not weep. Look. Y'all, there's a sermon there. Sometimes if we would just not weep and look at Jesus, we might find answers. <laughs> might. We will find answers to the greatest needs in our lives. Don't weep. Look. Don't weep. You, you, you spent three years with this guy, and that was 70 years ago, maybe longer. John might have been even younger than that. It's been a long time, fella, and you have been walking with him. You wrote a gospel. You wrote three letters. You've been leading churches. You got guys over here uh, by the name of, uh, one guy by the name of Polycarp who's off in the church right now in Ephesus. He's doing a great job, fella. You, you, why? Oh, because the longing to see the worthiness of Jesus is so great. We need to see that. Don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes with the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll 
out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Suddenly, John was in the presence of worth. And if he expected him, we know who he expected. We know he expected Jesus. So, in your dream state, and when you're in that, that building, when you're at school, and it's suddenly the first job you had at Sonic, and you know that the manager's about to come in from the uh, cooler in the back where they're bringing out the shark, y'all know serve at Sonic, um, you know that that manager is going to look like Bigfoot because that's what you're expecting. Totally. It makes perfect sense. John looks up, and he's... He, he, the, a change in the air. Maybe he hears the gasp of the four weird-looking creatures and the twelve elders, or, or there's something. He looks up, and suddenly, suddenly, right there, he saw not Jesus, right? It, that's not who I saw. This is a slaughtered lamb walking around, and he's got seven horns and seven eyes. That's exactly how I remember Jesus. But he knew immediately who it was. He knew immediately that he was in the presence of worth. I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. Now, the elder, or, or the voice, not the elder, rather, sorry. Oh, yes, it was one of the elders. Uh, the elder said, do not weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah. That is a pull from Genesis 49.9, where when Abraham was blessing, uh, nope, sorry, when Jacob was blessing his children, he tells Judah that the scepter will never depart from you, the, from, the, from the lion of Judah. You, 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 you will always be reigning. He is a lion. Jesus is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But Jesus is not worthy in this scene, in this instance, because he is the lion of Judah. And then the elder says, he is the root of David. And that goes back to Isaiah 11, where it says, a, a shoot of Jesse will grow up from the stump. It, it, the, the, the message being that there will always be a son of David on the throne. But he is not worthy because he is a root of David. It, it, it was a messianic prophecy, but he, that is not why he is worthy. He is worthy because he conquered. He is the lion. He is the root. But he has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll. He is worthy because he has conquered. And if we stop at the end of verse 5 and we give a little cliffhanger, that's right, he did conquer. He came in power, right? Sword and horse. And, and, and as soon as he got to the gates of Jerusalem, he gathered the people and he attacked and he took over and he threw out the Romans and yay, Israel wins. And that is not at all how it happened because John goes on to say, the lion, all right. Now, if John's honest here, dreaming, some guy says, the lion of the tribe of Judah I'm expecting a lion to walk in. I've already got four creatures flying with six wings. One of them looks like a lion anyway. I mean, except with all the eyeballs all over him on the inside too. So I'm just going to expect a lion to come through the door. A lion. Oh, but he says a root of David. All right, Groot is coming through the door. 
a tree, right? A, a Jesus Groot. He didn't know what Groot was. That was that's an anachronism. But, but that's, the, that's what I thought of. I mean, if a tree walks through the door nowadays, thanks to Marvel, I'm thinking of I am Groot. But instead, the conquering lion, the, the one with the scepter, the, the root of David, the king who has been around for so long, David said in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, all that comes out and it's a slaughtered lamb. Now, this would be the classic you should see the other guy moment. Right? Because if if the conqueror comes out and looks like a lamb who's had its throat cut and bled out, man, I want to see the other guy. If that's winning... I want to see what losing looks like. See, the conqueror did not conquer by winning a fist fight. As a matter of fact, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, won, conquered by losing. Y'all, it blew the disciples' minds. As a matter of fact... Some theologians, theologians would say that that's what pushed Judas over the edge. I mean, Judas had a lot of issues, not least of which was he was destined to be the one, chosen to be the one to betray. But there are those that would say Judas thought he would be pushing Jesus into his military position. Finally, we'll push it. When, when he goes to prison, when he gets whooped on, then he'll, then he'll rise up in power. Finally, he just needs the, needs the nudge. And Jesus says, no, guess what? <laughs> in order to win, I've got to lose. In, in, in order to be first, I've got to be last. In, in, in order to be served, I have to serve. And in order to win the fight, i got to turn the other cheek and get punched again. It, it almost sounds like the cross was a culmination of all of Jesus' teaching. But maybe that's just me. Jesus' conquering came by losing Slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures. And you know why I know he conquered? Well, at first it says he did. He has conquered. He's got seven horns, which horns are a symbol of power. Seven is a number of completion. So he's got complete power. Seven eyes. We, we correlate those to the seven torches which it says are the Spirit of, Holy Spirit of God. And again, completion, seven the number, not that there are seven spirits of God, but that number of completion says the Holy Spirit is, a, is complete, is completely God, all the way back to the seven uh, candlesticks, the seven lamps in the churches. Again, the Holy Spirit with them. So he's got the seven horns, the seven eyes that give him complete omniscience. He is God. Sent into all the earth, it says. 
And I know He conquered. I know He is strength because He strolls up. Maybe He didn't stroll. But He took the scroll out of the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne. Get the picture. If a king wanted to bestow something on you, you would go up, if you were still in a, in, in a uh, 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 monarch, monarchical society, you would go up, you would kneel, and you'd keep your head down, and, and, and you would keep your eyes averted, and the king would come down, if he so deigned, and give you something. But instead, Jesus, the lion, the, the, lion, the root, the conquering, slaughtered lamb, walks up to the throne, to the king, and takes it out of his hand. Who does that but the co-regent? The, the one who sits at the right hand. The one who is king with the king. This sounds like a sermon from a few weeks ago. That's who. They were in the presence of worth. And so when they were in his presence, they worshipped worth. Verses 8 and 9. When he took the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which to the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Not because you were the lion, not because you were the root, but because you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, the creatures that it describes here again for us or tells us about here are, I have no clue, it's a blank. The elders, maybe it's a representation of the 12 disciples and the 12 tribes. The Bible talks about those two groups ruling. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not. The elders are, I have no idea, I left it blank. But what I do know is that when Jesus takes the scroll, when the one who is worthy does what he is worthy to do, they are, go from worshiping God, chapter 4, to worshiping the Lamb, chapter 5. They just redirect their worship. Why? Because they're worshiping the same thing, only different, but the same, but different, but the same. And they worship him for dying. They worship him for purchasing. They worship him for saving and for reconciling. He died on the cross. He died slaughtered by his blood. They were purchased because of his death. Bought them back. Redeemed. Saved them. Their souls were saved. Our souls were saved because of his death. And then we were reconciled not just to God, but to each other. We were bought for God, yes, but from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And do you know how that irked some of the Jews? Wait, we're the chosen people. No, everybody's the chosen people. From every language, tribe, people, and nation come followers of Jesus. And they worship the Lamb who could do it. They, they worship the one who is worthy. And then we get to verse 10. And we see our one worth. We see who we are. We've gotten this image of Christ. 
We see him as the lion and the root who was slaughtered as a lamb and conquered through his death. We see it. And then we must ask, what does that mean for us? Because, Michael, you said the title of this series is Knowing the One We Worship. So now we know Jesus, but what does this do to our worship? Verse 10, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. These people that he purchased, these, the, from, from every tribe and language and people and nation, we are purchased. Our one worth is in Christ. Our worth is not in our financial ability, our social status, our skin color, our political party, our nationality, or anything worldly. Our worth is found in nothing that we can look to around us and describe ourselves by in any way other than our relationship with Jesus and our position as creator, creations of God. Our worth is found, first of all, in our imago dei, our image of God. We are created in the image of God. So God loves us peculiarly and particularly out of all of his creation because we're the only thing he created in his image. But then our worth is found in our salvation, being purchased by the Son of God. We have value as his special creation. So much value that Jesus died for us. But our worth, who we are, is who we are in Christ. We are worthy to approach the throne because of Jesus. We are unworthy to approach the throne without Jesus. So this morning, if you are putting your worth in anything other than a relationship with Christ, you are putting your worth in something that will go away that will not get you to heaven. It might get you on boards of directors. It might get you positions of influence in some ivory tower. You might get to be the grand marshal of the sulfur homecoming parade. Who knows? I mean, there are no ends to the limits that you might get temporarily. And yet, without Jesus, you spend an eternity with hell in hell with everybody else who didn't trust Jesus as their Savior. Our worth is found in Christ. Because He is worthy, because He bought us, because He died for us, because He made us a kingdom and priests to our God, we are worthy. And Jesus is our one worth. You can be found worthy this morning. You're worth enough Jesus died for you. But you're not worthy to be in his presence. To be called a child of his. You're his creation. But you're not his child until you admit that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he can save you from your sins. That he can draw you in. That his work on the cross was enough. And if you choose to make Jesus your Savior today, if you choose to follow Him, you will be saved. And you will be counted worthy to spend eternity 
with him. That salvation may not change your worth in the eyes of the world. But it will change your eternity. So take on your one true worth this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you count us worthy as your creation to send your son to die for us. And I thank you that you count us worthy as your adopted children to take us home someday to live with you. And I thank you that in the meantime, we have our Lion of Judah, Root of David, Slaughtered Lamb, Savior Jesus, to worship and to look on and to find our hope. That we, that we can know Him like this, that we can know You like this because of Him, that we are a kingdom of priests, kingdom and priests to You, Thank you for that precious gift. I pray this morning for someone who, who, who thinks their worth is in their stuff or, or who they are or who people think they are. May they find their worth in you. May they find their true worth in a relationship with Jesus Christ. For believers who, who struggle and think that there's, there, there's something they have to do that... That, that, that somehow you aren't enough. Lord, may they find you to be enough. That that is their true worth. And Lord, may we worship our Savior, Jesus, as the only one worthy of our worship and our praise. The only one who can open the seals. The only one who can launch judgment. The only one who can save our souls. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So we sing this morning, I pray that you would find your worth. As we sing about the one who is worthy, you may have a decision that you need to make. Tom will be at the back, he's at the Welcome Center back there. Uh, if you would like to have him pray with you, that would be great. If you would like to trust Jesus as your Savior, he can explain that more to you. We'll have some deacons at the back. If you're a first-time guest this morning, let's remind you, or if you're a, a longer-term guest and you've never gotten one of our nice coffee mugs, go back there. They're on the table. Uh, you can get them there. But this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes worshiping the one who is worthy as he, well, as he works on our hearts to show us our one true worth in him. So let's stand and let's sing and let's do business with God this morning.